0: When you two met, there was probably an early physical reaction, a romantic attraction
1: that pulled you together, a love appeal that hits you sort of, boing. How did you know? Well, it happened to me. It happens in some degree to most couples who become happily married. Boing. Boing. Boing.
2: Why, yes, I think you've missed getting
3: ready for men. Boing.
4: There is no shortage of clips like this on YouTube, Hannah. Dozens of educational films from the 1950s like Should I Get Married, Going Steady, or A Boy's Fancy.
1: And don't change the subject. Do I look good in a chiffon nightgown or don't I? Or don't you notice
4: anymore? We have arrived at our fourth step. And the Life Stages series here at Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice.
1: I'm Hannah McCarthy.
4: And today we're talking about marriage.
1: Married life isn't all Hollywood moonbeams and honeysuckle, but it can be mighty satisfying at times.
4: All right, it's easy to mock these 1950s sexist education reels. But one thing I will say, it is no wonder there were so many about marriage after World War II. There was a spike in marriages and divorces higher than ever before in the US. Couples rushed to the altar after the war was over, uh, and some who had maybe gotten hastily married before the war filed for divorce immediately after.
3: It seems strange, doesn't it? What do you mean? I mean, you're doing this thing that feels so personal, and you're thinking about where you're going to get married and what you're going to say and this whole new life together and an engagement party and telling family and friends. And then it's like, well... Now i got to figure out what forms we have to fill out.
2: For motor vehicles, press 1. If you wish to speak to someone about marriage
5: licenses, divorces, court cases, or jury duty, please press 2.
4: It's true. It's so weird. You're like, ah! And then it's like, but then we have to do the thing. We have to do this other thing, right? What do we do? Let's Google it. Getting hitched is not specifically outlined in the Constitution. It's up to the states the fees, requirements, wait times, minimum age of marriage. Also to the states is who can marry you, who can officiate the wedding. Most states say it has to be a recognized member of the clergy, a judge, or a clerk. But states like California permit anyone to apply for permission to become a, quote, deputy commissioner of marriages for the day.
3: Isn't that nice? That is nice.
4: You've heard of the Universal Life Church, right?
3: Is that the one online that... That gives you the ability to marry someone? Yeah. yeah. um,
4: It's a church that allows anyone to become a minister and thus officiate a wedding. Got it. As long as they follow the state process. Only North Carolina and Virginia have ruled in court that universal life church marriages are not valid. So when it comes to governmental requirements for getting married, you're looking at 50 different sets of rules. So I called a bunch of county clerks.
0: The cost for issuing a marriage license is $53. If you payable by cash, Visa, licenses, Mastercard or Discover, or how to make an appointment. Please note that we will that you go not to our a
2: website check. at www.bigapplecourts.com
0: for information regarding
2: For information regarding, regarding marriage records and licenses. And and licenses are you coming in are you doing a license or you want a certificate
3: yeah Nick which one did you want I
4: froze up I wasn't sure I had to ask her which was
2: which it's like a driver's license you'd get a license to get married and then afterwards we would mail you a certificate
4: these are the two documents you need to get from the government to get married one before and one after you tie the knot so I obviously need a license first and the costs and requirements to get one of those not only vary by state, but sometimes even by county okay, What you would need to bring with you is an original birth certificate for both of you or either a certified copy of
2: your birth certificate.
4: Both parties
0: must That's be the, present uh, uh, with a photo ID and be at least 18 years of age.
4: Sometimes you both have to be there, sometimes just one of you the ID needed varies it can be birth certificate social security card passport they almost always need a driver's license and the price is on average around $40 but it can be as little as $5 in Oklahoma
0: if you if you go through the two together class
3: then there is then you get a discount wait what's that
4: uh, some states Texas Minnesota Tennessee and Oklahoma Offer you a discount on your marriage license if you take a premarital education course.
2: We do offer a discount for um, people who take 12 hours of premarital counseling through an educator of their choice. 12 hours? Yeah,
4: but in Minnesota, that knocks it from $115 down to $40. bucks.
0: Hmm. The bride, if under the age of 50, must provide a proof of a rubella blood test or a doctor's statement regarding
3: sterilization. Wait, this information what? Must be okay, suspended. first off, why rubella?
4: Uh-huh.
3: Second off... Why do they have to show proof of sterilization?
4: So Montana is the last state to have a blood test to get a marriage license. And they're testing to see if you've been vaccinated for rubella, which is also called German measles, which passes on to a fetus and can cause birth complications. So if you show that you've been sterilized, you don't have to prove that you've had a rubella shot because you're not going to have kids anyway. All that said, the CDC claims there's about 10 cases in the nation of rubella every year. And since 2007, actually, in Montana, As long as you and your spouse both co-sign a document and say we don't care, you can opt out of the blood test.
0: If there have been previous marriages, we need to see um, a death certificate or a um, divorce decree.
4: All right, here we have reached our first national constant. If you've been married before, you have to provide details on the dissolution of your previous marriage to get a new one. Some states just need some relevant details and a lot of others need to see the documents.
3: So what happens if you say that you're divorced, but it turns out you are not, is your new marriage just null and void?
4: Oh, I asked. That
1: is a legal question that I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole.
4: (laughs) So marriage certificates are this great example of federalism. He's been on the show so much, he's got his own theme music. That's Dan Casino, political science professor from Fairleigh Dickinson University.
5: Every state has its own rules for marriage certificates and when you can get married and when you can get divorced. And this led to a lot of forum shopping. Uh, And so libertarians and people who believe strongly in federalism are going to argue this is the real strength of federalism, that everyone can choose which laws they want and they go and they vote with their feet. And if you have a state with good laws, more people come to your state. And if you state with bad laws, fewer people come to your state. What this meant in terms of marriage is that basically if you wanted to get married on the quickly, you just went to a state where you could get married easily. So you just went to Delaware and then you could go to Delaware and get married uh, within three hours. You didn't have to wait three weeks, didn't have to get a blood test, didn't have to do anything.
3: Oh, uh, this is where we get the trope of the drive through wedding in Las Vegas, right?
5: Yes, right. And this goes for divorce as well. And if you want divorce, as recently as the 1940s, if you want divorce, you had to go to Nevada. You had to set up residency in Nevada, so sometimes you'd have to live there for as much as 60 days to establish residency, and then you could get divorced divorce within a week. If you were in California, for instance, and you wanted a divorce, that divorce took a minimum of one year in an effort to try and get the couple to reconcile. The court said, say, great, you file for divorce. We'll see you in a year. And so you could, So going to Nevada was actually a much easier way to do this.
4: So California no longer requires you to try to make things work for a year. No? No. It's down to six months.
3: Oh, Uh, But why do you even need a marriage license? It's not like driving where you could injure others if you don't know what you're doing. So why does the government make you get a license and a certificate? Because otherwise you could be married to like 100 people, and how would the state (laughs) know?
4: This is Leah Plunkett. She's the Associate Dean for Administration and Director of Academic Success at UNH Law.
0: The same way that we get a birth certificate or a death certificate, the state does very legitimately need a way to keep track of people and their various familial statuses, again, not, not too focused, right? I mean, the state isn't going to ask you to get a license if you're not married to your significant other and you break up. Right. You don't need to let the state know we lived together for 10 years and it just didn't work out. And I'm really sad that he got to keep
3: the cat. But what's the reason that the government needs to know your marital status or that you're not married to like
4: 100 people? There's no federal law about it, but all 50 states have laws against polygamy, being married to more than one person. Monogamous marriage is very ingrained in Western culture and in mainstream Christianity. Polygamy was allowed in Utah before it became a state but Utah was required to ban it in its constitution to gain statehood. Some states make it a criminal offense if you have more than one marriage certificate.
3: So now I have to ask, I've always been so curious, what actually changes for you in the eyes of the law when you get married? Closet space. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: um, everything, really. And and so what is what is changing is... Um, how the government regards you and your familial affairs, not your professional affairs, right? So back even up to the certainly 1950s, probably into the 1960s or even 70s in some places, there were restrictions on a married woman's ability to engage in the professional workforce without going through her husband in terms of her ability to own property. In
4: 1974... The Equal Credit Opportunity Act passed in the U.S. And until that point, a bank required your husband to accompany you to co-sign a credit application, like to get a credit card.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. But if you were a single woman, you could get a credit card by yourself, right?
4: No. You had to have a man go with you and co-sign.
3: It should surprise me, but it does not.
4: Also in the eyes of the law, you can confide in your spouse— Uh, Places where you couldn't confide in your friend, for example.
0: If you're engaging in a private marital communication with your spouse, no one's overhearing it, you intend it to be private, if there are then some sort of government proceeding against one or both of you, you can claim spousal privilege in regard to the contents of that conversation. It's in that same very broad umbrella as lawyer-client, doctor-patient. Each one of them are very Different, too, um, but that the same basic idea of the government recognizes certain types of relationships as being so foundational to your sense of self, to your well-being, and so inherently private that they will wall them off from being able to be pierced by the government in the course of a law enforcement, administrative, regulatory proceeding.
4: But one of the biggest changes legally when you're married is that resources can be shared. You and your spouse can now collect assets known as joint property. You can share bank accounts. You can share your stuff, your house, and your debts.
3: So if you owe money on a mortgage and you die, your spouse can't just walk away whistling airily the debt doesn't disappear
4: right and when you file your taxes you can choose to file them jointly with your spouse and possibly lower your tax bill oh if some rando hannah gave you a gift of a million dollars out of the blue you'd have to pay taxes on that gift but married couples can exchange money gifts tax-free have you seen shawshank redemption many times
5: if you want to keep all that money give it to your wife The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. I think
3: of it as like an emotional scene, not an informational scene. (laughs) I know we're a civic show, not a show about the affairs of the heart, but it feels like we're being just a little cold and calculating here. Marriage is ideally an expression of love, and people have fought to have the right for that expression.
4: All right. So, um, we're gonna have to go back a little bit, um, maybe more than a little bit.
3: Horse and carriage, a little bit, or maybe further. Magna Carta, kind of far.
4: Just a quick jaunt to like twenty three hundred BC.
3: Okay, so the Mesopotamian. Yeah,
4: the first evidence of marriage, Mesopotamia, twenty three fifty BC. Hannah, your my concept of marriage is super duper recent.
1: We tend to think about tradition in rather uh, (laughs) truncated ways. This is social historian Stephanie Kuntz,
4: author of Marriage, a
1: History, or How
4: Love Conquered Marriage. And it's implied in the title of her book. Love had nothing to do whatsoever with marriage.
1: Marriage started out as as the main way that um, in the absence of a fully developed banking system and wage system, marriage was the main way that people raised capital, made political connections, made alliances. uh, And it was also used as a way of um, uh, recognizing the citizenship of a man. A man was not considered Uh, fully adult until he had uh, a wife to be a co-worker. Um, One of the things that's interesting to modern people is we sometimes think of the male breadwinner marriage as traditional, but in fact, it was not. Uh, Through most of history, a man needed a wife to run a farm or to run a small business. And in fact, colonial authorities often forbade a man to open a small business, or especially an inn, if he didn't, if he wasn't already married. Okay, so this isn't just ancient history. This continues even to colonial America. So by the time the colonists came to America, you had two different, uh, interesting marriage systems going: the that of the Native Americans, which was still based on making kinship alliances and connecting um, uh, groups that were far flung, so that you married out of your group and you had in-laws and therefore obligations and favors uh, with another group. But by this time, the practice in England was uh, more endogamous marriage, to marry people of the same class or in the same grouping. And it was still very much... tightly controlled by parents. In fact, in New England, uh, one of the laws was that if you won the affection of a young woman without having had the permission of the father, the young man could be whipped.
4: The reason that parents were so controlling is because until about 200 years ago, the explicit goal of marriage was to acquire useful in-laws and gain political and economic power.
3: So when does this shift? When do people start to choose their own spouses?
4: In the late 1800s, people start to be paid wages, wage labor, when work in America wasn't so dependent on your spouse and you'd like go to work for someone else instead, marriage could kind of start to move away from this economic agreement. And that's when we start to see the rise of what historians refer to as the love match, couples getting married because they want to.
1: But the other interesting thing that happened, and this is also particularly American, is that. The government began to use marriage as a way of distributing resources, uh, rights, and obligations to people that in some other countries were more universally targeted. Instead of a giving a right to uh, health care or social security directly to people as they aged, uh, it began to be channeled through whether they were married, so employers, uh Oh, you only got health care if you were married to someone who was employed to an employer who offered health care.
3: Why did they start to do it that way?
1: it was cheaper (laughs) than giving universal citizenship rights to people, but also there was a sense uh, that had existed for quite a while, that marriage is something that stabilizes people, especially um, in the years of the male breadwinner marriage, which as I say, was a pretty modern invention, but in the 20th century, the ideal was that uh, if the men could earn enough Uh, to support a family, the woman would stay home and take care of the kids, and therefore society wouldn't have any responsibility uh, for that. And furthermore, the man would work much harder because he had to support a family.
4: But the other side of this is that once these benefits are tied to the institution of marriage, unmarried people don't have access to them.
1: But the right not to marry became very much penalized because you couldn't get access to these uh, kinds of, you couldn't uh, you couldn't automatically choose who could inherit from you. Your, your partner wouldn't have the right to visit you in the hospital. Bleeding same-sex
5: couples for marriage thus conflicts with the central premise of the right to marry, inflicting stigma, uncertainty, and humiliation on the children of same-sex couples through no fault of their own.
4: This is Justice Anthony Kennedy reading from the Supreme Court decision from Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, a narrow 5-4 to four decision which altered federal law and it required all states provide a license and legally recognize same-sex marriages. Because we haven't talked about the most important way the government interacts with you when it comes to marriage, when it decides who can marry whom. That's coming up after the break. To understand the history of who can get married in the U.S., I spoke with Corey Graves.
2: My name is Corey Graves, and I'm a professor of history at the University at Albany, part of the SUNY system. I teach courses on marriage and family, women gender, and race.
4: And she explained it through the lens of three laws that were passed in Virginia.
2: Because when we think about the limitations on marriage, it reaches back to the earliest days of the colony in Virginia. If we look at uh, sort of this question of Virginia and the history, Pocahontas and John Rolfe represents one of the first uh, of what we could consider an interracial marriage.
4: Just to jump in here, if you're like me and relied heavily upon the song Fever, Or, if you relied upon the Disney movie for this history, Pocahontas didn't marry John Smith, she married John Rolfe. And there is evidence that she had been married before John Rolfe, had a child, and was kidnapped from her tribe to form the alliance with Rolfe.
2: That particular marriage was celebrated because it represented a kind of old alliance, uh, old world alliance, and also the alliances that we think about in New World context, too. But rather quickly, in the colony, individuals uh, started to transform how they thought about that relationship because of ideas about superiority, inferiority, and the status of women. So she and John Rolfe uh, married in 1614. Uh, They had a son. They traveled to England in 1616. And she dies on the way home.
4: And at that time, Virginia starts to pass laws that specifically forbid not just interracial marriage, but interracial sex.
2: So that begins in 1630. We see the governor ordering the whipping of um, a white man for interracial sex. Uh, He defiled his body with a Negro. We start to see that. So as early as the uh, the mid-1600s, you see that while there was a promise in the Pocahontas-John Rolfe relationship of individuals imagining that you could cross certain borders, that that begins to quickly... Erode.
4: One especially problematic part of the relationship was their difference in status. The British, didn't see the Algonquins as equal, and there was some thought that marriage could be used to help Native people be more like white Europeans.
2: So it's not that this marriage represented a kind of equal footing in any way. In fact, she was considered, uh, because she was female, she would have lost her status, uh, that the status that she had as a favored daughter in the tribe who had power in a matrilineal society. She would have lost that by becoming the wife of a British subject who... Um, understood patriarchy as the appropriate order for society and for family. So the, that relationship uh, is is not, it's problematic, but it also represents the first. Throughout the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, you get the elaboration of laws defining who could marry whom. And these laws are always about creating a boundary between first the British colonist and later Anglos, American Anglos, that said they can only marry Anglos. So in terms of who could marry whom, when we think about it as a a way of creating a, a kind of white supremacy, and I use that word deliberately because by the time we get to the 20th century and one of the most restrictive laws about both marriage and immigration. It is, it is about, the, the law itself is about preserving white supremacy. In
4: 1924, the United States passes the Johnson Reed Act, which is all about restricting immigration using race-based quotas, which, by the way, is not lifted until 1965. And this is why we have enormous immigration from Italy and Eastern Europe until 1924, and then it just stops. And Corey told me about another 1924 law passed again in
2: Virginia. The state legislature passed what was called an Act to Preserve Racial Integrity. And what this law did was it prohibited any white person from marrying anyone who was not white. It also said that any interracial marriage that took place outside of Virginia, Virginia wouldn't recognize. So you couldn't go outside of the state boundaries, come back and say, hey, we're legally married and this marriage is recognized across these borders. Because marriage, each state gets to define its marriage laws. So that's the law that was in place. And it was, again, a product of centuries of defining and actually limiting who could marry whom.
3: How did they actually go about enforcing this with
2: paperwork? So this law specifically required things like birth certificates so that you could prove who you were. It looked at things like blood quantum. But it also has a very curious exception. It was called the Pocahontas exception. And it said that a person who could claim one-sixteenth or less Native American heritage could still marry a white person.
3: Why on earth would they create that super specific specification?
2: We're
4: still in Virginia, and this goes back to the John Rolfe Pocahontas marriage. Uh, lots of wealthy, elite, first-family Virginians proudly claimed descendancy from the Pocahontas-John Rolfe marriage, and they didn't want to have to jeopardize their status. This Racial Integrity Act is law in Virginia until one of the most famous marriage Supreme Court cases in order. history.
2: That There is much
0: more in essence here, that there's actually one simple issue... And the issue is, may a state proscribe a marriage between two adult consenting individuals because of their race?
2: And this would take in much more... I, I always think, what more fitting name than Loving? That's his real last name. It was Loving.
4: 1958, Richard and Mildred Loving got married in Washington, D.C. because they couldn't marry in Virginia because he was white. She was an African-American. And they returned home.
1: It was about 2 a.m. And I saw this light, you know, and I woke up and there was the policeman standing beside the bed. And he told us to get up. that we was under arrest. And they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years.
3: So they have to leave for 25 years. They yeah. have to completely dismantle their
4: lives. And they did for their marriage. Um, they left their jobs, their home, their family, and they moved to D.C., And they were arrested when they just came back to visit their
2: hometown. And this case would actually make its way through the Virginia State Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it would be Loving v. Virginia that would establish the right to marriage as a protected civil right. Chief Justice Warren would offer the argument that marriage was, and this is a quote, one of the basic civil rights of man— and, and the end here is, is added, to deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in the Virginia Racial Integrity Clause is surely to deprive all the state's citizens of liberty without due process of law. This was a unanimous decision, by the way, in 1967. But it still meant that each state had to change their laws. So Virginia did in 1968. West Virginia... Florida, Oklahoma and Missouri in 1969, North Carolina in 1970, Georgia, Louisiana and Mississippi in 1972, Delaware and Kentucky in 1974, Tennessee in 1978, South Carolina in 1998 and Alabama in 2000.
3: This is like what we continue to hear about officials refusing to grant licenses to same sex couples like as we speak even though the decision came down years ago that same-sex couples can marry.
4: Right, and the loving decision was cited in that case, in Obergefell v. Hodges. And it's not just officials, it's politicians who are proposing bills.
0: A bill that was just filed in the Tennessee legislature, the Tennessee Natural Marriage Defense Act. And this uh, would define a natural marriage as between a man and a woman. Of course, we know there's going to be lots of strong opinions on this. We want to hear from you.
4: Last thing we should talk about before the end is the end, when a marriage just doesn't work. Uh, The 2019 divorce rate in the United States is about 39%.
3: Okay, when did divorce start to become a common thing in America?
4: Stephanie Kuntz told me about that.
1: With the development of the love match, and this was one of the tremendous complaints that Uh, defenders of the real traditional marriage of political and economic convenience had against the love match, they said, look, if you say marriage is about love, people are going to demand the right to divorce if marriage ceases to be about love. And that has been a steady, steady increase in demands. They began to liberalize the little divorce uh, uh, right fairly early in the colonies. It happened more after the American Revolution. But still, our laws, right up until 1970, were based on fault-based divorce, that you had to show that the other party was at fault.
4: If you're wondering what can justify a fault divorce, the most common grounds uh, are adultery, abandonment, prison confinement, one spouse is physically unable to have sexual intercourse, or one spouse has inflicted emotional or physical pain
1: on the other. And many people romanticize this. They think, oh, marriage was more stable under fault-based divorce. But fault-based divorce was really weird. You had to come to the court, this is the way the courts put it, with clean hands if you wanted a divorce. In other words, if you came in and couldn't prove that you had done nothing to contribute, to the complaints of which you you were wanting for which you were wanting the divorce, you couldn't get a divorce. There was a, a divorce uh, in the 1930s uh, in a state next to mine, Oregon. Maurer versus Maurer. The court found that the family lived in terror of the man's uh, you know terrible temper and temper tantrums. But they found that the wife had thrown pots at the man a couple times. So therefore, since neither party came to court with clean hands, neither of them could have a divorce.
4: In 2010, New York State became the 50th state to allow for no-fault divorces. So now you can get one all over the country. One or both of the spouses has to claim that the marriage is, quote, irretrievably broken, uh, or you have irreconcilable differences.
3: But still, in California, you told me you got to wait six months before you can get divorced.
4: sure do. And in Virginia, you have to live apart from your spouse for a year uninterrupted. if you have kids, six months, 17 states require divorcing parents attend a divorced parent education class. All
3: of that statutory red tape aside, I do feel like we have come a long way since the Mesopotamians.
4: We have. And so much of it is so recent. Stephanie Kuntz told me that for thousands of years, the institution of marriage is relatively unchanged. But when we start with the love match, moving through the 19th, 20th century, especially the last 40 years... The benefits of being married are
1: covered in other places. Americans no longer feel that marriage is essential to have a successful life. Back in 1950, 85% of Americans said that it was immoral or deviant or, or, you know, psychotic uh, to want to be single, not to be married. And there were all sorts of social and legal uh, sorts of discrimination that occurred if you were not married. Nowadays, people accept that you can have a good successful single life, that marriage is not central, but at the same time as we have stopped valuing marriage so much as a mandatory institution, we have actually increased our expectations of it as a good qualitative relationship. And the paradox is that We expect more of marriage when we're married, and we do marriage better, most of us, when we're married than people of the past. There's less domestic violence, there's more equality, there's more sharing, there's more intimacy, but people aren't willing to enter or stay in a marriage that doesn't live up to that, and so people are postponing marriage.
3: It's almost like she's saying, we're more likely to marry for love and like a really solid, well-established love, because otherwise, women and LGBTQ people have actual codified rights now. And so, like, I can get a credit card. I can own property. I can adopt a child by myself if I want to. I don't have to marry a man to live out certain important steps of life.
4: So now our little hypothetical American has been born, educated, Worked, married, divorced. And after all that stuff, isn't it time that this American had a break, Hannah?
3: I think it is. But that's next time on
1: Civics 101. Say, now do you think we have anything more than (laughs) boing? Why, yes, I think you've made a good start towards getting ready for marriage. All right, turn that
4: off. That'll just about do it for today. This episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy.
3: Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Ben Henry, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Erica Janik as our executive producer and killer of darlings.
4: Maureen McMurray and her husband, Danny, are totally go boing.
3: Music in this episode by Broke for Free, Chris Sabrisky, Kilo Kaz, Lee Rosavier, Scott Gratton, Spaz Cardigan, and this here is Crawler.
4: I love me some Time Crawler. If you're like Johnny and his cobra car are going to hop out any minute and push me off my bike.
3: Civics 101 is... Some- Supported in part by the CPB and is a production of NHPR New Hampshire Public Radio.
4: And it is supported in part by you, gentle listener. Thank you so much to those of you who have given already. If you haven't, go to civics101podcast.org, and check out the kind of swag we have on offer, and thank you so much.